Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And today we're going to be continuing our Staffordshire Horde project, and we're going to be talking to an archaeologist who was involved in the first dig. Not only that, but you might have watched the news recently and noticed that there was new stuff coming out of the Staffordshire Horde. That's because there was a second clandestine dig, and our guest was involved in that one as well. So this is a really fun episode for me because I get to do something that podcasts almost never get to do, and definitely history podcasts almost never get to do. I get to deal with breaking news. Unfortunately, the inquest is still going on and will continue until January 4th. So until that's completed, Stephen won't be able to talk to us about his opinions and the findings regarding the most recent dig. But he was quite involved in the first dig, and that really was the larger and more substantial dig. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to share all this with you. Now, before we get going, I'd like to thank the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, the Potteries Museum at Stoke-on-Trent, and the Staffordshire County Council for all the fantastic support and access that have been granted to us. It really has been a treat to speak with all these experts. If you'd like to learn more about the Horde or visit these fantastic museums, you can find links over at my website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. My name is Stephen D. I'm the Principal Archaeologist for Staffordshire County Council. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And I think the first question I have for you is, how did you get involved in archaeology? I really got involved in archaeology following on from my A-levels, which um, actually I slightly messed up. I ended up doing an HMD in practical archaeology at the Dorset Institute of Higher Education. And then that led me on to do a degree um, at Southampton University and following on from that, a career in archaeology. And eventually I ended up doing a master's degree at York University as well. So I think from that, one of the good things is you never exclude yourself from archaeology. You, you, you can do it if you want to. Even if you mess up on grades or at school or anything like that, there are still options for you to actually achieve your goals. So it's, it's quite an important message that you don't need straight A's and everything to, to go and do this. You can do it other ways as well. There are, there are always other options open to you. That's an excellent message. And I know we have quite a few kids who do listen to this show, so it'll probably be a relief, though not probably to their parents, for them to know that a bad grade won't necessarily kill their career in archaeology. The good grades always help, so make sure you study. So, Stephen, what drew you to archaeology? Quite strange. I, I, I used to enjoy brushing soil and things like that. It was, it was quite a strange sort of obsessive-compulsive thing. But I also enjoyed finding things or finding things out. The joy of discovery was there at an early age. And telling stories as well, because that's what a lot of archaeologists do. We find evidence, quite often partial or fragmentary, and then we use that evidence to tell a story about a site or an area or a landscape. And that's one of the joys. And people's stories can be different, and they can interpret the evidence differently. They're each as valid as the next. Um, our experience is just as valid, and it's the stories which come out can be radically different. And so it's, it's the joy of discovery and the joy of, of actually telling people about your discoveries. That's what, really, that's what I really enjoy. So obviously, the main reason that we're talking today is because of what's been going on with the Staffordshire Horde. My understanding is that you were involved with the Horde since its early beginnings. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Horde and what happened? I first became involved in the Staffordshire Horde following a, a phone call from um, a colleague called Duncan Slark. Duncan was the portable of Fines Liaison Officer for Staffordshire. So it was his role to work with metal detectorists, go to their rallies, log their fines, and communicate those fines to us at the County Council so that we can actually place records onto what's called our historic environment record. 
that's a log of everything that we know from the historic environment for the county. Um, Duncan called me on, I think it was a Tuesday, and said that he'd been contacted by a metal detectorist who thought that he found an Anglo-Saxon hoard whilst detecting in a field to the south of Hammerwich. So we said to Duncan, well, that's really interesting, Duncan, as it's Tuesday afternoon and we're about to go, why don't you go out and photograph them? Not really thinking anything more of it. And the next day we came in and I had about 20 or so shots or images in my email box. And it was just this fantastic material that I'd, I'd never seen before. There was the folded cross in there. There was this uh, possible cheek piece. There were hilt plates, pommel caps. As soon as we saw that, it was, yep, that's, that's a, an early medieval hoard. And from there, we, we started to think about, well, certain questions started to spring up. The hoard seemed to be very biased from the photographs. Was there more out there? Was Terry do were we looking at a site or a hoard itself? Because a site is represented by a period of activity. Uh, a hoard tends to be a single or multiple acts of deposition. So you go to a site and you bury it and then you go away again. You don't go hang around there too often because people will, it will attract people's attention. So we had lots of questions. So we went out there, myself and a colleague called Ian Wikes, and we, we did a small test pit, about one by one meter in size. We found about another 100, 120 pieces in that one day's excavation. And we were working with a metal detectorist at that time. So we went back to Birmingham Museum, spoke with English Heritage and a specialist at Birmingham and with Kevin Leahy, who was their early medieval specialist, and really started to develop a plan of attack to actually excavate the hoard and understand what the context was for it, if there was a context. So that's really where things kicked off. At this point, it's just you're bringing in professional archaeologists, yourself and Kevin Leahy and, and others, correct? Yes. Kevin was very much advising on the material that we had. He, was, he started cataloging the material as soon as he could. We developed a project design to map out the site works. Because of the very rapid nature of this, we appointed Birmingham Archaeology because they could get bodies on the ground very, very quickly, working with English Heritage. So then, I think it was a few days later, we actually had the archaeologists on the ground. And as part of that, we were having a very large-scale magnetometry survey of the site. And then we started to strip back, centering on the area that Terry had pointed out as being the main concentration. And then we worked out in one-by-one-meter spits. At the very beginning, I required that there be wet sieving of all foil that was removed. Taking advice from Birmingham Archaeology and English Heritage, we had a very big discussion about this and it was decided that we simply couldn't carry on doing that. So then we ended up just simply removing the soil, metal detecting on one by one meter grid, and then recording everything that we found in the soil. And that was a process that continued for about five weeks, I think. So that's where we were. It was quite an interesting piece of work. Can you explain really briefly what wet sieving is, please? Quite often you use it for particular samples of material. So you'll get a big bag of soil from a feature, for example, and you will suspect that there may well be fines or, or something like that. In this case, it was fines. So you have uh, what's called a nest of sieves. So these are sieves of different diameters, the largest at the top and then the smallest at the bottom. You place your soil into the sieve and you then run water through it. That removes all of the soil and everything else and all the organic matter and it leaves the stones and other bits and pieces. Smaller pines will get washed down through the sieve and collected at the bottom. Larger pieces will stay at the top. It just allows you to separate out from the soil and the spoil the artifacts that you are looking for. 
So you moved away from that and just manually were separating soil from the objects? What happened following on from that was we decided on site that we couldn't continue to wet sieve because the soil was particularly dense and also we simply didn't have a good enough supply of water. So we moved away from that and working with Terry, basically whenever we were excavating a small one by one meter area, all of the soil was lifted, taken to a particular area and put onto a tray and then Terry would metal detect it in numerous directions to recover material that we, we hadn't found during the excavation. It's very, very strange. It's usually you will find hoard in a feature, and that's where you will encounter it. With this, it seems as if the final plough has destroyed the feature, so all of the material has been incorporated into the topsoil. So there is no feature to sample. You have to think about sampling every one-by-one-metre area of topsoil. There's quite a lot of work to do that. That's something that I read, I think it was actually in uh, Kevin Leahy's article, that there used to be a uh, some sort of mound on the land that got flattened. Could you explain a little bit about uh, that? We're not entirely sure whether there was a mound there or not. There has been some suggestions that that's the case. We found no evidence of a mound. We did find a small curvilinear ditch in the area of the hoard. That was excavated in part, but nothing was recovered from it. So the advice was that may well be natural in origin. Now, we are now going back and having a look at that from the records and also from the aerial photographs of the site because there may well be more to it than that. So to date, it's very difficult to say whether there was actually a mound on that site. Quite often, the Anglo-Saxons do like to place secondary burials within pre-existing prehistoric mounds. And where you don't get mounds or prehistoric mounds, they will build their own, and, and you only have to look to Sutton Hoo for that. That's a purely an Anglo-Saxon barrow cemetery. So they are seem to be fascinated by the mound, but also by the implication, because with, with the mound, you're actually saying that we've been here a long time. They are laying claim to a landscape through this. So it may well be that we have a mound there. We found no evidence for burials, but it might be that the mound meant something else. It may well have been a, a boundary marker or something like that if it existed. So part of the English Heritage ongoing research uh, project, they are looking at all of the aerial photographs for the area. And that includes, I think, the Luftwaffe holiday snaps of the 1939-1940 period because they were using very, very good photography. And it's quite wow. early and we may well be able to pick material up from that as well. That's amazing. So in your discussion of how everything came about and how quickly you moved to setting up a grid, I noticed you mentioned that it only took a couple days for archaeologists to come in from Birmingham. As I recall, so are we looking, yeah. So my recollection is that Terry spoke to Duncan on the fifth day of the dig. That was when the dig for his dig started slowing down. So we're looking at just one week after that initial discovery, we have professional archaeologists on site starting their own dig. As I recall it, yes. I mean, I don't have a timeline with me, so it's one of those things, because obviously this is sort of in 2009, uh, I'm not entirely sure of the uh, the timeline of events, but it was pretty quick afterwards. We went on site about a day or so after Duncan had let us know and shown us the photographs. We then went down to Birmingham Museum and discussed things with English Heritage and with Kevin Leahy, had a look at Terry's 500-plus objects, had a look at our 120 or so objects. And from there, we came away from there and said, OK, well, we need to prepare a project design in order to get funding. But English Heritage, to be fair, had just said, look, just just do it. It doesn't, you know, the, the key thing is to secure that site, secure this assemblage. 
So uh, with regards to when actually boots were on the ground, it's harder to say, but it was very, very quickly after the initial um, contact. In addition to it being quick, it was also secret. Terry was keeping it very secret when, when he was out there on his own. From speaking with other people involved, they've all mentioned the secrecy. Can you explain a little bit about why it was done so quickly and so covertly? Really, even from the very beginning, uh, we recognized that this material was, well, it's incredibly valuable. I mean, you know, you, you, you were talking about kilograms of gold even from the very beginning after Terry's work. From our initial work, we were starting to realize that this is all in the topsoil, so it is easily recoverable. The site itself is on a ridge. It's about, oh, I would say, eight meters to the south of the Watling Street. So you can see it's which is the A5. It's a major trunk road uh, running through Litchfield District. So it's very, very visible. There are no trees to cover that side of the field where we were. So anyone coming down the Watling Street, heading away from Brown Hills, which is a small settlement nearby, would see us on site. So we had to be aware that we were being viewed and we were very visible. So it was really how we managed that process. People were going to know that we were on site. So we determined that we would say, if anyone came up and asked, that they were um, excavating a small Roman site and that they really hadn't found too much. At the same time, right down at the bottom of the field, I mean, the county council had got on board a security firm to provide on-site security throughout the day, well, 24 hours a day. And then later on, we, we contacted the police just to let them know that this was what was happening. Now, the police were there to do drive-bys of the site, but also to speak to local communities, the liaison groups, Neighbourhood Watch, just to see if there are any unusual people in the area so that we would be aware of it. So that, that was the ongoing security process. Really, it was simply because it was so accessible. People had known it would have been so easy to what we would call nighthawk the site, which is illegal, legally metal detect. And it would have been very, you know, quite difficult to stop bar having people on site, you know, quite considerable security presence on site. So we tried to keep it as quiet as possible. I think at the county council we knew, we told, I think it was about six or seven people um, because they were signing off on mine and Ian's uh, timesheets at that point. And we didn't want them querying why we were spending so much time out at Hammerwich. So we got the chief exec involved, we got the local uh, district councillor, just so that if, if people were asking, they would be in a position to know and potentially they could run some interference for us. So is it just about, what, a couple dozen people who knew about this? or We tried to keep it as small as possible. Um, I'm not entirely sure how many people. Uh, with something like this, it's very difficult to manage. You know, people tell people in confidence and... It's like ripples in a pond, all of a sudden it goes out and out and out, and then at some point it becomes beyond your control. Um, well, that was the thing is, in my own personal experience, people can't keep secrets to save their lives. No. But, you know, I was over at Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, and I was talking to uh, Deborah Kane, and she was talking about how she'd see David Simmons going off and having secret conversations with people. And so people knew that something was going on, but no one had any idea, even within the institutions, of the scale of what was happening and exactly what was happening. So it's stunning to me that you've managed to keep it secret as long as you did. Was that just shared enthusiasm and, and the fact that you're just at the site all the time so you couldn't tell friends and family? or? <laughs> 
Possibly. I mean, I, I, I was at the site quite a bit, but not constantly. I mean, one of the things you, you had to try and carry on your day job, carry on doing the, uh, providing the service that you provide, you know, as an officer of the county council. So that had to continue. But at the same time, you had to keep a weather eye on, on what was happening on the field. You were in constant contact with the archaeologists. You were trying to manage expectations. You were dealing with people who were querying it. We had, you know, locals knew, you know, there was an archaeological excavation going on. They knew something strange was going on, but they didn't find out really what. At least I don't think they did. So, yes, it was difficult. I mean, human nature is they like to impart secrets. Uh, it's very difficult to keep secrets. But I think in this one, people recognize you know, the, the extreme significance and you know, the extreme threat as well. When it comes down to a find of such national and potentially international significance, people tend to realize that actually you know, secrecy is, is not an option. It's, it's a requirement. In some ways, you know, I mean, I am uh, I'm a professional archaeologist. If someone asks me a question, I have to give an honest answer. I have to be open and appropriate in my advice. So it ran slightly contrary to how I had been trained. But the other side, the balancing factor is that this is so significant that at some point you have to keep secrets. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible thing to say, but people were asking me what's on that site. And I was just saying, oh, it's just a Roman farmstead, um, knowing full well it wasn't. But it was just one of those things that you absolutely have to do. You must control the message as much as possible. Now, this wasn't the only secret dig that you've been a part of. I was just over in the UK interviewing Deb Klemperer yeah. and David Simmons. And one of the questions that I was asking every single one of them is, are there any future digs planned? And they all got very <laughs> furtive when I asked the question. <laughs> and so uh, how did you manage to keep that secret? Because I, when I was asking the question, I was thinking something's got to be going on, but I don't know what. And, yeah. and from the sounds of it, you were digging at the same site. So... Yeah. How did you keep that under wraps? Well, it was a much smaller piece of work. Uh, the work that we were doing was quite extensive, so it was across the entire field. People knew about the Staffordshire Horde by that point, so they were aware that something was going on. Uh, there was no point in trying to hide that. But again, the thought was that this is more, more of an extensive piece of work. A lot of the metal detectorists, I mean, it was going around on, on little Twitter feeds and things, and the view was that this is English heritage doing some more sort of landscape-based work to understand the context of the hoard. And to be honest, it was. I mean, that's what we were really trying to do. I mean, we left the hoard site and we found very few features in the, in the initial works. The material, the, the assemblage of the hoard itself was found within the topsoil and in some cases just lying on the surface or lying on this subsoil layer. So we wanted to go back. We wanted to go back to understand whether there is actually a site there. Uh, we wanted to go back and see if there's any pottery in the field, if there's any other form of metalwork, iron, copper, whatever. We wanted to go back and see if there were any bones or anything like that which could point to some sort of activity site nearby. So we were keeping an eye on that for a long time. We've been keeping an eye on the field, and we continue to keep an eye on that field, to be honest, and the local populace do as well. And we'd always thought, along with English Heritage, that we would like to go back when Fred ploughed the field. And earlier this year, he came to me and said, look, I'm thinking of ploughing the field because I want to put a crop in. So we then started to develop a, a project design, and it was going to be really extensive. It was going to be um, a very broad metal detecting survey with specialists from Archaeology Warwickshire, 
but also metal detectors amateurs that have worked on significant battlefield projects like Hastings and Bosworth and places like that. So we had that experience managed by Archaeology Warwickshire. And then there was a second phase, which was going to be field walking. And this is where you know, we, we were getting community involvement. The field was field walked by members of the local Hammerwich community. It was field walked by a group of archaeologists from the East Elk on Trent Museum Archaeology Society, partly to train them up in field walking, but also because we wanted to get them involved. So we had this process, and as part of this process, we found relatively little. I mean, I'm going to be slightly cautious about that because we haven't had the report on that yet. We found relatively little, but we did find uh, those possibly between 80 and 90 small fragments of gold and silver. Um, in the, I think they're, they're coming through in the area of the hoard, but again, I need to see the distribution plots for that. Obviously, then, the, the question is, why didn't we find it in 2009 uh, when we did the major work? There are a couple of possibilities for that, but we need to do a bit more work on this. The first one is that the materials simply layered lower level off the ridge and that when the plough moved through that in just recently, it simply brought it to the surface and then it was, it was detected. The other possibility, which is slightly strange, is talking to some specialists, they are wondering whether that field is actually conducive to metal detecting. Now, I know that sounds a little strange because we recovered 3.285 million pounds worth of gold from the field, but the 2009 metal detecting was done after the field was ploughed and the material came up. The most recent piece of work, the most recent metal detecting, which found those 80 to 90 pieces, was done when the field was ploughed. Prior to 2009, as I understand it from Terry and the landowner, some metal detectors went across the field and didn't find anything. And I'm just wondering that what Terry found or were reported to have found was what he thought was an iron bedstead when he found the hoard. Uh, it was coming up looking like iron. And I'm just wondering whether that field is... is if you don't break up the material, it's not conducive to metal detecting. That's that's a possibility. But again, I mean, some people have suggested it. I'm not entirely sure about that. So there we go. I mean, at the end of 2009, we had everything that was recoverable. And again, I would say in 2012, we have everything that's recoverable. I think the other thing to bear in mind is we're looking at a law of diminishing returns. I mean, the previous work in 2009 recovered 3,940 items. This current work has recovered 80 to 90, a lot of it very small, with the exception of this possible cheek piece and one or two other mounts, but it's all quite small stuff. So I'm, that's, that's where we're going with this. I, I think we're running it down, if it's not run down now. And this is all still gold and silver. We're not finding any of the blades from the pommels or anything of that nature, right? We're finding no blades. There's very little ironwork coming from the hoard itself, either the 2009 or, or later. I would wonder whether the blades have actually already been given out as gifts back in the 7th century. It may well be that the we, we find no coins in the hoard to date. Um, and it may well be that, I mean, Mercia, as I understand it, is not a monetary economy at this point, but coins are still valuable for the raw material that they contain. They are easily meldownable, if that's a word. So this material is taken out of the hoard and processed or, or reused. Similarly, you know, the blades are being given out. So I'm not surprised that we don't find blades in this collection. They're too valuable to bury, to be honest. Now that we've spoken a bit about the secrecy of the dig, why don't we get into exactly what happened? So it starts out with Terry Herbert on the field for about five days on his own. Mm -hmm. And then Duncan Slark was notified. 
And then the next day you knew about it. And within several days, you had professional archaeologists on the ground. Other than the wet sieving that we've already spoken about, how did the dig change once professional archaeologists got involved? The excavation was managed by Birmingham Archaeology uh, right from the very beginning. Uh, we kept an overview uh, monitoring progress for the, on behalf of the County Council and, and English Heritage and everybody else. We were learning as we went, to be honest. We started off with a clear idea that we would grid everything. So we would focus that grid on Terry's cluster of objects where everything seemed to be more densely occupied or densely positioned. And that seemed to work. So we would move out in meter spits uh, in all directions. And then we would continue going out and everything was excavated. We found, we found one or two features. I mentioned the curvilinear feature that we found, uh, which some people thought might be a, a barrow ditch or part of a barrow ditch. And, was, and we excavated it and found no evidence of that. So we were still doing the, the standard archaeology, but at the same time, it was what some people would call a rescue dig. It was a recovery exercise. That was the key thing for us. That was our overarching aim of that project, was to, to recover that material and remove it to, to safe storage. So that seemed to go reasonably well. I mean, we excavated down to the subsoil. We were very, very close to the uh, parent material, the bedrock, which was a, a sandstone. So you were only talking about 300 millimeters, 400 millimeters depth on the top of the ridge. So that's what we were dealing with. It was a relatively simple piece of work, but quartering it up and then metal detecting was, was quite time consuming. Also, you are excavating through topsoil. Now, traditionally, archaeologists are, in particularly well, in, in, in this country and in Europe, are dealing with stratified deposits. So you excavate through a deposit or a layer, you then record, you do it again and again and again. The same with features. This was different. There was no section to produce, apart from the site section edges of, of, of the actual excavation. We were simply recovering material from this topsoil. So it was a relatively quick piece of work, which was done carefully. I know people have, have, have queried that, but it was done carefully. And then the material was taken off to actually be scanned by the metal detectorist. And it was scanned in multiple directions. It wasn't just one direction, because depending on where a piece sits in the soil, that will tell you whether you get, get a reading or not. So if a piece is angled in a particular way, you run a metal detector over it, you will tend not to see it. So it was scanned in multiple directions to recover everything that we could possibly recover from that site. So other than uh, metal detecting, what other sorts of non-intrusive archaeology and geophysics were being used to determine where to dig? Initially, we carried out a, a very detailed magnetometry survey of the entire field. Magnetometry is, it picks up uh, magnetic variances within the soil. It's very good for finding areas of burning, um, obviously metallic objects, but also where we've got uh, material that's been moved around within a ditch. It, it can change the magnetic response and so that will show up on the plots. It's also very good because it provides a very rapid response. We can get the results relatively quickly. And at the same time as that, the team that were doing this were preparing a, a topographic map. So that's where we pick up the ridge from. We can see it quite clearly. So that was done for the entire field. That highlighted this curvilinear feature, which we then investigated. It didn't tell us too much more about the scatter of material. So really, rather than throw more geophysical techniques at it, we, we, we thought, well, the best thing to do would be to actually carry on excavating until we get to a point where there is nothing there, excavate another couple of squares, and then we will stop. We have found the scatter. So that was the point. 
We also then went back and did some resistivity survey the following year and used that to inform a more conventional archaeological evaluation of the site. So that was carried out in 2010. That really picks up water content in the soil. So, for example, if you have a ditch, a ditch is likely to contain retain more moisture. So that will show up on your resistivity survey as a particular feature or an anomaly. Similarly, a wall is very dry. It's not likely to retain moisture, so it will show up as a different anomaly. So you can actually draw a picture of subsurface deposits from this, dependent upon their water retention. So that's what we used in this second phase of works. Uh, and again, we picked up the curvilinear feature, picked up one or two other features, including a field boundary, which seems to veer away from where the horde site is. The question is, well, why does the field boundary veer away in that area? It runs along the ridge and simply curves away. It appears on 19th century mapping. Usually field boundaries of that, to that date are surveyed in. They are straight, unless it re represents a change in geology for some strange reason. But in this case, it doesn't represent a change in geology. So the theory is, well, why is it changing direction here? And then we go back to Kevin's mound. Is there a reason, a physical reason, for this field boundary to change direction? And we're just wondering, again, that might be a little bit more evidence to say that something, some upstanding feature was present at that point on the ridge close to the Watling Street. So it's this sort of, these questions are constantly being being developed or answered or new questions are being brought up as well. So there's still more work to do. I mean, the questions here are not going to be answered for years yet, to be honest. So in addition to the need to get this stuff out of the ground as quickly as you could and safely as possible and dealing with the potential of nighthawks, what other challenges did you face during this dig? Were there issues with weather or any other problems? We, we did have issues with weather um, on several occasions we were completely washed out. The soil seemed to be reasonably free draining, but once you got down below the topsoil, you, you come across a, a clay layer. And obviously, you know, we, we all know that clay retains water. I mean, it's, it's very good for that, or prevents water from seeping away. And on numerous occasions, you would come to the site, and it would basically, this area that we'd excavated would simply be a swimming pool. So we had to review what we were doing, step back and well, generally just head off the field and go and sit in a cafe somewhere. Uh, so, um, yes, there were, there were problems with weather. We didn't actually have that many problems with people asking us questions, not that I know of. I do know that the team on site were dealing with interested passers-by because there was a lay-by at the bottom of the field and people, uh, lorry drivers generally parked up and were interested in asking questions. Similarly, the, our security guard was pretty good because he was running interference as well with people. So I think everybody was sort of pitching in. I mean, we didn't actually tell the security guard what we were doing, but he sensed that there was something significant going on and he didn't really, you know, he got quite protective of the site. So I think there were challenges there. I mean, and, and also, I mean, again, if, if more people know, there's the potential for uh, you know someone just to not have the right story and say something different. So there was always a challenge to try and get that keep that story straight and, and aligned with the story that we were putting out. So uh, th there was that, and uh, at the same time, obviously the challenge from our side of the county council, at Staffordshire County Council, was what do we do once this becomes public? Because here we have a responsibility to the site, to the landowner, and to the finder. And we can't be cavalier with that. You know, we have grave responsibilities where they, they come in. 
So we were always, even at that very beginning, we were talking to our communications team and getting them ready so that they knew that there was something coming and we would have to be thinking about press conferences, we would have to be thinking about developing partnership agreements and what have you. And and it happened very, very quickly after the inquest. I mean, the inquest was held and then we we had a press conference at which the world's media were, were, were in attendance. And that was all part of the process as well. And that was quite tricky to sort out. So, you know, thinking about who needs to be contacted, when, why. And if you don't contact everybody, then given the significance of this site, people's noses can get put out of joint very, very quickly. And that's something that we were very, very conscious of and tried to counter and do as much as we could to, to make things run smoothly. So with these challenges in mind, how long did the first dig actually take from the moment where the archaeologists were on the ground to when you were done and were able to let the members of the community and the public at large know about it? The excavation itself took, as I recall, about five weeks. And following on from that, the site was backfilled and we moved off site, obviously. And then we maintained silence because even then we were actually required by the coroner to keep silence uh, until the actual inquest took place. We can't prejudice anything that the coroner says. So the coroner was very, very clear that he wanted this secrecy to be maintained for that site. And only once the inquest had been completed could we actually tell people what we'd found. And that was done at the, at the press conference. I think by that time, people were starting to suspect things. But, I mean, to be fair, they, they didn't really ask us too many questions. I, I think they knew that or trusted us that they, that they would find out and that there were good reasons as to why we couldn't say anything. But we had to keep very close lipped and close mouth until the coroner reached his verdict on whether this was treasure, which, to be honest, was no surprise, and also with regards to other details of it. So we, we had to hold off on that until that point. Why do you think that the rule was loosened for this second recovery of objects? We discussed the second recovery of material with, with the coroner in great detail. We were concerned that metal detectorists had been aware of what we were doing. And there was a metal detectorist who, as I understand it, is a relation of someone from the Birmingham Mail. And the Birmingham Mail approached our press team to ask us questions about this and about the works going on. So the worry was that this was gradually becoming slightly more of a known quantity. And because of that, we thought that we had to get something out to actually manage the situation. That was done in conjunction with the coroner. As I said, I mean, he agreed everything that we did the press statement, the holding statement, the need for a conference as well. If Andrew Haig, who is the coroner, had come out and said, no, I'm unhappy with this, we would have stopped immediately. And as it is, there is another small conference to be held, uh, I would imagine, straight after the inquest on the 4th of January. So it was very much in line with what the coroner wanted to do. We wanted to try and manage the situation as best we could particularly over Christmas. We didn't want right. this being in people's minds as to, well, what were they doing on site? Maybe I'll go and have a look. We wanted to actually uh, deal in absolutes rather than hearsay for that site at that point in time. So going back to the first dig, how tough was it to do your job and act normal while you're waiting for all this stuff to get out of the ground and uh, then for the coroner to finish his inquest? It was very difficult to act normal, to be honest. Yeah, I couldn't say anything to my girlfriend, my parents, anyone. It had to be absolutely quiet as a mouse. Uh, And it was very, very difficult. I mean, 
usually if you have good news or you have something really interesting to say, you want to tell people. And, and again, that goes back to part of what, why I came into archaeology. It's about storytelling. It's about telling people about the historic environment and how important it is. You, know, you can almost get quite evangelical about it. But this was a case where you couldn't say anything like that. And, and it was cutting people up inside, you know, not just myself, but, you know, Ian Wykes, who I work with, other people on our team. I mean, we, we had to tell my colleagues in the historic environment team, and they couldn't tell anyone, and, and the people working on the site couldn't tell anyone, and it, it had to be absolutely nailed down. And it was it was a problem, because we're all in it really for the same reason, you know, a love of our historic environment, a love of archaeology. And to not be able to shout this from the rooftops is difficult. But I think, hopefully, it's something that we achieved with relative success. Now that you're able to talk about the Horde, obviously, and so you can tell these stories, what is your story about what happened with this Horde? <laughs> what do you think what do this I think? all about? Oh, that's going to be really interesting. What I think happened with the Horde, I know that there are a number of sort of hypotheses floating around. My favorite is probably the most sort of almost mundane. Um, I think this is what's called an angst Horde. An angst Horde is a Horde which is deposited at a time of stress. So a good example of an angst hoard would be, say, Samuel Pepys. He famously buries his wine and his Parmesan cheese along with another friend uh, in advance of the Fire of London. Um, he's worried about losing it uh, and losing his house, so he buries all of his valuables. Unfortunately, he buries it in an area where the fire front sweeps through and he loses all points of reference and he never finds his Parmesan cheese again. And I think it's something similar. What we see in this collection, you can almost call it a trophy hoard. I think it's material which has been given for services rendered to a senior individual, maybe an alderman, maybe a veteran thane, someone like that. The veteran thane, one of his responsibilities is to provide troops to the king in time of war. And once you provide troops, if you're victorious, you receive gifts for services rendered. And similarly, the veteran thane will give gifts to his men for services rendered. So we get this trickle-down effect of material. The role of the gift giver is absolutely crucial in Anglo-Saxon society, as I understand it. If you read Beowulf, which is sort of a 10th century story, but is looking back, I think, into this period, it's the same thing. Halfdane's son is a gift giver. He gives Beowulf gifts for services rendered. So what you see with this collection is a point in time. We've lost the blades because you don't bury blades. They're too valuable. You give them to your retinue and then they carry them, and their glory reflects well on you because you have people armed with swords, and swords are the preeminent offensive weapon of the time. You don't have any gold coins or any coinage because it's been reused. It's been melted down into it to make other objects. So what you have is the core. It's almost like a, a memory box. So this may well be in circulation or may well be with this individual, his family, for 50 or 20, 50, 100 years. We, we don't know how long. And then he buries it. I just wonder whether it's at a time of stress. Now, here, it's one of the dangers is linking archaeology to historic events. It's very easy and very tempting to do this. And I'm going to do it now. And I, it's probably, but this is a flight of fancy. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying myself here. So what the hell? We have a um, poem called The Elegy of Cundlan. And I'm mispronouncing the name, and apologies, I'm not Welsh, so I can't speak the language. But there is an elegy of this war leader. And it talks about a battle between uh, Welsh and their allies, the Mercians, and the Northumbrians at a place called Caer Thwit Coed, which has been interpreted as the Fort of the Grey Wood. The Fort of the Grey Wood is either Leto Cetum, which is wall, 
nearby, or it's Litchfield. So we have this large battle going on, and we think this is about 660, 680, there or thereabouts, late 7th century. We have a battle going on. Now, someone realizes exactly what's going to happen. They're going to get raided, and all this material is going to get stolen by the Northumbrians as they pass through, because they come down the A5, generally. The Mercians come up the A5, the Northumbrians have been trailed by the Welsh, and there is a battle in this area. But in advance of that, someone comes out onto the A5, rides down the A5, and that's a Roman road. We know it's been actively managed and maintained throughout this period, so it's still there. They get to a point on the road where there's a ridge, about eight metres to the south of it, very prominent, maybe with a mound on it, maybe with a difference in vegetation, we, we don't know, but something picks this out and they bury it. And then they either get jumped by thieves, they die in battle, but the key thing is they don't tell anyone where it is and it stays buried for 1,300 years. Now that's my story, and I'll go as far to put a name to it. I, I think that this material, it, it all seems to be 7th century or slightly earlier. You just wonder whether this is actually in the reign of King Pender a very, you know, the last truly great pagan king of this country. I, I think he fights and kills five Christian kings in combat. Um, he's called Rex Perfidium in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. He is, he's a very good warrior. Um, he fights numerous battles in this period between when he comes to the throne in about 624 or 654. And that 30 years as an Anglo-Saxon king is impressive beyond belief, you know, particularly in that period. A veteran thane or an alderman providing service to Pender would have had ample opportunity to actually gain this material as, a, as victory gifts or service gifts. And so that's where I think we're getting it from. And interestingly, some of the material, again, I wait for Kevin's views on this. Some of it seems to be cloisonné work, which is um, very typical of sort of Sutton Hoo and that sort of area, which is where Pender's operating. And again, we've got filigree, which is to the north of, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching the point a little bit here, but it seems to be, you know, from northern England and the Northumbrians are who he also likes to fight. So for me, it, it, it fits in. It all seems to connect together. There's always a danger in that, but I, I like that as a story. I also feel like it's got to be connected somehow to Penda. You've got Oswiu giving that big tribute. We're not sure what happened to it afterwards, and then he yeah. loses. I mean, he had to have had a tremendous amount of war booty. And the inscription itself, the, the Latin inscription itself, would indicate that it should be some sort of war booty because the Mercians were illiterate at that point. Yeah, um, yeah. But the question that I have for you is how it relates to Sutton Hoo, because for the longest time people cannot help but say Redwall at the same time as saying Sutton Hoo. Mm -hmm. But when you look at Staffordshire Horde and the wealth contained there and compare it to Sutton Hoo, if this is just a horde for even a veteran thane during a very lucrative time to yeah. be basically a mercenary warrior, shouldn't that reevaluate how we're looking at Sutton Hoo? Because you just have the one pommel at Sutton Hoo, and it's a lovely pommel, but we've yeah. got 90 over at Staffordshire. Yeah, I, I think that, that, that that's that's. The, I mean, that's a question that always comes out. You know, how can you compare it to this to Sutton Hoo? Sutton Hoo is different, and it's like comparing apples to oranges. Sutton Hoo is a burial. You know, we think we we had a body, we've got a boat, we've got a barrow cemetery. It's got a lot more information there. But with burials, they are very particular. You get one of everything because that's the material that you carry. Well, you get one sword 
and sword fittings. You get a shield, you get a helmet, and that's what you take into the afterlife. That's what you arm yourself with. Generally, I mean, from my experience, and again, I could be called down on this one, but my experience, hordes from this period tend to come from one of two contexts. They either come from burials, again, where you get one of everything, or they come from votive offerings, where you get material placed in the ground as a single object, uh, usually in wet ground, uh, an offering to the gods, to the spirits, to the ancestors, whoever. This is different. This seems to be material which has been ripped apart, apportioned out, I would almost say, but it's been ripped apart. There's damage there, and it's historic damage. This is not from the plough or anything like that. This is historic damage. So for me, it sits well on a battlefield. It's been pulled off, apportioned and then it's been taken away that's what i think but i think it's really really difficult i take your point i mean if if you look at the helmet and if those cheek pieces are actually from a helmet it far outstrips radwald's helmet um it's incredible i mean you look at the uh the the silver foil you know we we have silver gilt foil i think the something who helmet is is tinned brass i think I mean, helmets is radically more impressive. The problem is we've only ever found four helmets up until the Staffordshire Horde from this period, so it's very, very difficult. But you know, I would suggest you know the helmet is a is a is a uh, an expression of wealth and power in itself. You know, it's what you you see an awful lot of effort going in to create these things. So we have a, a you know, there's there's a lot of potential there, but it's a good question. And I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I've always grown up with it being Radwald. Uh, and then it came through a period where it's fashionable to say it's not, and then it, people were wondering whether it was again. So I, I just genuinely don't know. It is a very good question. Well, I know you're not allowed to discuss too much about the second dig till the inquest is over. So would you mind having a chat with us sometime in the new year, and we can discuss what's been found? Because I know that there's the second, uh, you know, we'll call it a cheek piece, but they are very small for cheek pieces. They, they uh, are, yeah. So can we speak again in the new year? No, no problems. That's that's fine. I mean, the, with the cheek pieces, we do seem to have hinges. Uh, we we found sort of four hinges, uh, or they have. You know, Dave, Dave and his team have. So, the other thing is, it's got a flange on the inside, and we're just wondering whether people were saying, well, if if it's got a flange, it must be padded. And again, you know, I mean, if it is a cheek piece from a helmet, padding is just, you know, it, it's it far surpasses what what uh, Sutton Who is. So going back to it, you know. So, yeah, I'd be more than happy to. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us, and and I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Now, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory, and we're on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast, and of course, you can join us over the forums. Just go to the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click on Get Involved, and click on Forums, and we'll see you over there. All right, thanks for listening.